We'll be in 2 Timothy chapter 3 in a moment. 2 Timothy 3. It's a blessing to be with you this morning. I want our visitors especially to know how encouraged we are by your presence. We hope that we've been an encouragement to you. And our greatest goal here this morning has been to glorify God. And so we seek to do everything by His will. And if you have any questions about what we've done, we'd love to discuss them with you as we simply seek to do the will of our Creator. I appreciate very much um, Aaron and his preparation for those songs and uh, the careful attention to the lyrics that it takes to put together a theme like that. Um, And no pun intended, but I'm thankful for those songs of Thanksgiving. And we do indeed have a lot of blessings to count. We need to think about them and meditate on them. That's what Philippians chapter 4 in part is about when he talks about meditating on what is good and noble and virtuous and of just report, so on and so forth. God's given us so many good things to think about and so many things that we should be thankful for. This is one of the biggest things that we should be thankful for. I know Jesus is the top God, the Holy Spirit, The reason we know about them is because of this great book that we hold in our hands. Or maybe you're scrolling through on your devices. I do that too, and that's just perfectly fine. I want us to read very quickly in 2 Timothy 3, verse 16, a companion passage to what Thomas read earlier. And we'll look at that passage as well in more detail. And think about a passage that we're very familiar with this morning. Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.16, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. The word Scripture there is the Greek word graphe. Uh, Strong defines it as a document, holy writ. Thayer says it means a writing, a thing written. And the reason it is holy writ is because it's inspired of God. We'll talk about that in a moment. But he's saying that all writing, and obviously under the connotation of things that are God's will, is inspired of God. What does that mean? We'll talk about it. But I want us to just dwell on the idea of writing for a moment. In Romans, the 15th chapter, and in verse 4, the Apostle Paul said, Whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we through the patience and comfort of the Scriptures may have hope. 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 11, another passage speaking to the Old Testament writings, All these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the age have come. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and in verse 15, the Apostle Paul said this, Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you are taught. He's talking about divinely inspired traditions. He says, hold fast the traditions which you are taught, whether by word or our epistle. And that divides the instruction in between verbal speech that they heard audibly Our word spoken to you and epistle is a letter that is written to them. In fact, in 2 Peter 3 and verse 16, verse 15, let's look at that. The Apostle Peter said, Consider that the longsuffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul, the Apostle Paul, according to the wisdom given to him. And he's talking about divine wisdom has written to you, as also in all his epistles, the letters he's written, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of the scriptures or the writings. Those are thoughts that I think, at least I can speak personally to myself and my own state of mind, just skip over sometimes and don't really meditate on, as we talked about in class, and and chew on the concept that these writings are the words of God. God did not intend to, throughout all of time, reveal His will by audibly speaking. There was a time when He did. 
But there was always the need for a continuation and perpetuation of His will in totality that can be referenced at any point of time by any man or woman or child in the world. And so the written word is what God decided to use to convey His mind and His will. Do you understand that? People in the world want to act like you can separate the written scriptures, will of God that is inspired of God from God's communication to us. God doesn't communicate to me when I read the Bible. God communicates to me in a still small voice in my head or in a vision or in a dream. You want to know something? Hebrews 1 says he used to do that. In various times and in various ways, God spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, which included written things, but also audible teachings. It included visions that God gave them. It included dreams like Joseph dreamt a dream from God. It was his communication to Joseph and then to us. But how do we know about it? He wrote it down. And now he speaks to us through his son is what Hebrews 1 tells us. But then again, Jesus isn't here anymore, is He? He's reigning from heaven, but He's still speaking to us. And what Romans 15 and 1 Corinthians 10 and 2 Thessalonians 2 and 2 Peter chapter 3 and 2 Timothy chapter 3 and 2 Peter chapter 1 and a host of other passages is telling us is that when we're reading this book, what is written, these words, God's talking to us. That's important. This is what Psalm 19 is about where Psalm 19 and verse 1 tells us, "...the heavens declared the glory of God, and the firmament shows His handiwork. Day unto day utters speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice, the voice of creation, is not heard." He's telling us that we can know God exists because He's revealing uh, Himself to us in creation. I want us to notice something else in verse 7. He takes a turn and he says, The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous together. And what he's saying is, you know God exists by His creation, but you know about God by His Word, what is written. That's important. The writing of Scripture is the way God has chosen to communicate Himself to man. But beyond that, its greatest purpose is to save man. Notice in 2 Timothy chapter 3, right before what we read beginning with, he told Timothy, from childhood you have known the holy scriptures, the holy writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. John's gospel explains its whole purpose at the end in chapter 20 and verse 30 where John, by inspiration, says, Truly, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of His disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. Isn't that impressive? I don't need to see Jesus' miracles to know that He's the Son of God. What Jesus told Thomas is, Blessed are those who, having not seen, believe because they have read what was written. And so given the importance of the written will of God, you, God doesn't communicate today except in His written word. And you can't know anything about Him unless you see it in His word. In fact, the beloved children's song, which is really not a children's song, it is a deep song full of God's wisdom. Jesus loves me. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. That's truth, brethren. I can't know about Jesus' love for me. I can't know about God's love for me, about His plan for His death on the cross, that a body He has prepared for Jesus, the Son of God, unless I read Psalm 40 and Hebrews chapter 10 and all the other passages that reveal God's love for me and His plan for me. The Bible tells us. What is written reveals it. And so given the importance of the written will of God, there's a legitimate question and investigation that arises as to the reliability and integrity 
of what we possess, what I'm holding in my hand, what you're holding in your hand or your devices, of what we believe that possesses in regards to the will of God. Is it completely the will of God? Is it indeed God's words? Is it inspired? Is it infallible? Is what we have in our possession what God intended to give us and can, intended to continue? Is, is it something that we can trust or has it been corrupted? Is this something reliable? And I think it's enough for us to accept by faith what the Scripture reveals, that it is inspired of God and I need to follow it. But I think there's legitimate questions about that. There's legitimate things that we need to consider and dwell upon. And I think it really boils down to two fundamental principles that Scripture does indeed reveal, that we can trust in and have confidence in that this is indeed the Word of God. First of all, inspiration. The Bible makes a self-claim, which is what we'll talk about tonight or this this morning. Maybe tonight. (laughs) Just buckle up. Hold on for me. The Bible claims itself, and that's what we'll talk about, inspiration, that God revealed His will using men through the written Word having complete control of the message that is God to reveal the very words that He wanted them to reveal. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. But providence is another part of that because there is a scientific principle that talks about how matter cannot be created or destroyed, but also there's a scientific principle called entropy where things are going to degrade and dissipate and go into chaos and disorder. That's why our bodies return to the dust of the earth. That's why in years and years and years, this physical sermon outline will just be you know, uh, completely disintegrated. You can't find it, biodegradable. And so what about those writings? If they wrote it 2,000 plus years ago, how do we have it today? They were inspired back then, but how do we know we have it today? Providence. God wanted us to have it today. And so it's the consideration that God is both omnipotent, all-powerful, and omniscient, all-knowing as well as having our greatest interest and heart. He wants all men to be saved. And 1 Timothy chapter 2 says to come to the knowledge of the truth, the written truth. He has that in his mind as our best interest. And he's able, because he's all powerful and all wise, to protect his revealed revelation and preserve it throughout all generations. And so when we think about the integrity of what we're holding, is it really the same as it was back then? Is it really the Word of God? That's a legitimate question. It's one I haven't pondered enough throughout the years in preparing these series of lessons, and it is a series. It has bolstered my faith, and I'm not even finished preparing it. But the fact that He has inspired it, and I trust that God's all-powerful, means I have God's Word today. But there are some nuances to that. And that's what we want to investigate this morning. We're going to consider the claim of inspiration. Lord willing, next Sunday we'll consider evidence of that claim. But it's very significant that the Bible itself makes a claim of inspiration. That's that's impressive as it stands alone, that, that the one who wrote 2 Timothy, that the one who wrote 2 Peter said, this is not from me, this is God's Will. These are God's words. That is impressive. But a claim without proof means nothing, does it? I can claim to be the world's strongest man. It doesn't mean anything unless I prove it to you. And, and you may not need to see the lack of proof either, because I'm not. But if someone claims to be the world's strongest man, he enters the world's strongest man competition and he lifts the most weight anyone has ever lifted. And you know, because it's been proven, he put his money where his mouth is. The Bible makes an impressive claim of inspiration, but it also verifies that through mountains of evidence. And we're really going to just be at the foot of the mountain, even at the end of this study. There are so many things to be considered in detail which show the veracity of integrity of God's holy and inspired word. But we'll start at the fundamental claim this morning. The Bible claims, as we just read in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16, to be inspired of God. That is an extremely bold claim. And I want to tell you even further more than that, than being bold is it's risky. Because if I claim to be a spokesman of God, 
and I ever stumble in my speech and say something untrue or contradictory to what I've said before, then I have showed you I'm not God's spokesman. You understand that? And so when the Bible says this is God's will, the entirety of it, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. That is bold and risky unless it's true. And what it leads to is the acceptance of one of two possibilities. If it claims inspiration, then it is either written by God, as it claims, or it's written by a bunch of liars who not only are just liars, but they are insane. And and there's no in-between. These are the only logical conclusions. You know, some people say the Bible is not written by God, but it is a good book. I want to tell you that's not logical. The Bible is written by God, and because it claims to be written by God, then it cannot be a good book if it is, in fact, not written by God. I'll give you an illustration. In Exodus, the 20th chapter in verse 16, the Scripture tells us that you shall not bear false witness. Now, God didn't write that if the Scripture isn't inspired of God. Some man wrote it. He came up with that. You shall not bear false witness. And in fact, Proverbs 6 and verse 16 says, The Lord hates a lying tongue. God didn't write that though. A man wrote it, but it's still a good book. And then in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 9, Paul told the Colossians, do not lie to one another. But God didn't write that. A man wrote that. Don't lie to one another. In 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 37, Paul had the audacity to say, if it wasn't true, the things which I write to you are the commandments of the Lord. Is that a lie or is it true? One or the other. If it's not true then why in the world would he also put all those things about lying? And as Revelation 21.8, a contemporary of Paul, an apostle, John revealed the revelation of Christ, all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. That doesn't sound like a sane person. If it's not from God, them saying the law says don't lie, and liars are going to burn an eternal lake of fire... That doesn't make much sense to say that about yourself, does it? Doesn't make much sense to condemn yourself. You, you've heard of, of cult leaders who claim to be divine, maybe even Jesus himself. They're not going to implement a law or, or implicate themselves in some kind of sin that will damn their souls for eternity. They are God, according to them. They would never do that. These men, if they're not writing the words of God, if God is not using them, they're insane because they're saying we shouldn't lie, but I'm saying this is from God. That must be a lie, and I'm going to go to hell for eternity. That doesn't make much sense, does it? And so there's no in-between. It's either written by insane liars if it's false, or it's written by God. But some people will say, well, it's a good book, but I don't believe it's written by God. Well, if it's a good book, and that's just it, that's all it is is a good book, then it's not a good book. That may not make sense immediately. But if I'm claiming that the Bible is just a good book, it is not revealed by God infallibly, perfectly, and completely, then it's not a good book because it bears false witness. It says it is God's, but if it's not God's, then how in the world can it be a good book? It's only a good book if it's God's book, and if it's a good book because it's God's book, it's greater than a good book. It is life-giving. Many reject that inspiration, though. But they'll say, I see literary value in it. I see historical value in it and cultural value in it and artistic value in it and moral value in it. I want to ask a question. Think about this. Can Jesus just be a good man? Some people even say that. Ah, Jesus wasn't the Son of God, but He's a good man. Well, He is a pathological liar if He's not the Son of God. He's not a good man. He led a bunch of people to die for a lie. He's not a good man. It's not a good book if it's just a good book. If the Bible's just a good book, but it's not from God, then it's written by dishonest and incompetent men. So how could it have artistic value? How could it have historical value? You know, we look at those who are great authors in our society and historians and inventors and innovators and those who have changed culture by their, their, their artistic abilities and talents and innovations and inventions. And we think of them as geniuses. People see poetry in the Psalms and are just taken their their breath is taken away by how beautiful it is 
and how wonderfully put together it is. People can see historical fact in the Bible consistently. There's not a contradiction. We'll talk about that in the series as well. I'll see some kind of historical value to it, but it's not written by God. It's written by crazy men who believed a lie, thought there was a God, and led others in that lie. That doesn't really make much sense to me, does it to you? No, if it claims inspiration, it must be inspired or it is self-defeating. The entire purpose of Genesis through Revelation is to save mankind. It pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. We just read in 2 Timothy 3 and verse 15 that the things that were written in the Old Testament were to make us wise for salvation. It's not intellectual. It's not historical. It's not artistic. Its sole purpose is the salvation of man, which tells me if it contradicts itself, if it says it's from God who alone has the power to save, but it's actually not from God, there is no purpose to the Bible at all. It's not for our vanity. It's not to pique our interests in the arts. It's not as a historical textbook, and it would fail to that degree if that's what we thought it was for, because it doesn't cover every facet of history and every detail of history. It's not meant for that. It has historical fact in it. It's meant to save our souls. And so to say what I'm writing is inspired of God is very risky, and I would even say very foolish if it's not true. And if it wasn't true, when they wrote it, they knew it wasn't true. I want us to consider this furthermore. It doubles down on the exclusivity of its inspiration. In Galatians chapter 1 and verse 8, we see what I'm saying there. The Apostle Paul said, Even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. He's saying this is the only inspired writing there is. And if someone else comes and says, I'm from God, even an angel from heaven, reject it. There is no other inspired writing. That's impressive to me. There are other writings which claim inspiration of God. So I'm not saying the Bible is exclusive to the claim. I'm saying that the Bible claim gives no wiggle room. It says if this is inspired, nothing else is inspired. But the Quran says this. The Quran says this Quran could not have been composed by any other except Allah. But it is a confirmation of that which was revealed before it. And it's talking about the Bible and an explanation of the scripture, the Bible. There is no doubt, therefore, thereof, it says, sent down from the Lord of all creatures. You see that? The Koran cannot be true because the Koran says the Bible is truly inspired of God and the Bible says there are no other writings inspired of God. You see that? It sets the Bible on an island by itself. The Koran is self-defeating. The Book of Mormon is also self-defeating. Joseph Smith wrote, For behold, this Book of Mormon, is what he's referring to, is written for the intent that you may believe that, the gospel, and if you believe that, the gospel, ye will believe this, the Book of Mormon also. And if you believe this, the Book of Mormon, you will know concerning your fathers and also the marvelous works which were wrought by the power of God among them. He's saying that you believe the Bible as inspired of God, and it is. If you believe that, you'll believe this. But the reason you'll believe that is because you believe this. And so the logic isn't even there. It's a circular argument. It's like the ones who try to prove evolution by saying this fossil is 2 billion years old. How do you know it's 2 billion years old? Because it's in a rock that's 2 billion years old. How do you know the rock is 2 billion years old? Because the fossil in it is 2 billion years old. And we could continue this for a long time. That's what the Book of Mormon does. The Bible kind of cuts that off. It says, I'm the only inspired one. That's pretty risky. Unless it's true. Yes, the Bible claims inspiration. What does that mean? Well, 2 Timothy 3 and verse 16 says all Scripture is inspired by God. We'll get back to that. 2 Peter 1 explains it this way. No prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. You might have a footnote in your Bible that says private origin. Prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they are moved by the Holy Spirit. In other words, these are the words of God. That's what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 7. We speak the wisdom of God, not man's wisdom. And 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 37, again, Paul said, The things I write to you are the commandments of the Lord. 
when Moses was on Mount Sinai and he revealed the will of God in the Ten Commandments, he said, God spoke all these words, saying, God spoke them. Hebrews 3 and verse 7 says this, when using the Israelites as an example of apostasy, quoting from the, the Psalms in Psalm 95, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you will hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. God the Holy Spirit said that. David wrote it. That's inspiration. Hebrews 10 and verse 15 says this, The Holy Spirit also witnesses to us, for after He had said this, and He quotes Jeremiah chapter 31, the prophecy about the new covenant. That's inspiration. And that's what the Bible claims for itself. Paul may have physically written it down. Moses may have physically brought it down and relayed it to them. Peter may have physically written it down, but they never took credit for it. These are the words of God. But you know, as you think about inspiration and what the Bible claims, there's a lot of people who do study the Bible vigorously, who believe that it is a good book and that it is inspired. But you see, we need to talk about Bible words in Bible ways. Someone can say, I believe that we are saved by faith through grace or by grace through faith. I believe that too. But they say that means without baptism. Well, then you're not saying the same thing as I'm saying. Because Ephesians chapter 2 and verses 8 through 10, really the greater context of verses 5 through 10 actually describes baptism. We're raised up to sit with Him in the heavenly places in Christ. We're buried with Him in baptism, raised to walk in newness of life. And so when we say that we believe we're saved by grace through faith, we're meaning something different than some others who say it. But the Bible did say that, and we both agree on that. And so someone says, I believe in the inspiration of Scripture, but this is what I think that means. There is the concept of illumination inspiration or natural genius is the other way of saying it. And, and what people say is that the Bible is inspired, but it's inspired in the sense that something would move me. I hear a good song or whatever, or I see something as I'm walking through the park and it inspires me to write a good song or to, to, to write a good novel or whatever it may be. And so these are noble insights of great people of faith, just insights of theirs or men of unusual ability, which is interesting if they claim that the Bible is full of lies and all this kind of stuff, these men of unusual ability. Some say, I believe in the inspiration of, of Scripture, and they use the idea of dynamic inspiration. So it is inspired of God. These are His thoughts, but they're not His exact words. We'll talk about that later in a minute. And then some believe in the partial inspiration of Scripture, where only some of the Scripture is inspired. And, you know, an example of this is that, yes, these moral principles are inspired. You need to love your neighbor as yourself. You shouldn't murder uh, you should, you should, you know, not lie, so on and so forth. But Jesus did not turn water into wine. Jesus did not feed 5,000 with five loaves of bread and two fish. Jesus did not walk on water. And so it's a partial inspiration. But who's going to determine what actually is inspired and what is not? It's completely subjective. What we need to do is accept that the Bible is inspired, but it must be held to its own standard. That's important. The reason this is a risky claim for the Bible to make is that it doesn't just say generally it's inspired, but it doubles down on what that means. It gives us a great insight into what inspiration actually looks like. And it's a lofty standard that I don't think any man would claim for himself. No man did. God made the claim. We need to hold it to its standard. So what is inspiration really according to what the Bible says? All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. The word inspiration is theonoustos. It's from theo which is God, and nuo, which is to breathe. Strong says it means divinely breathed in. In fact, if you have the English Standard Version, it says all Scripture is breathed out by God. The translated word inspiration is from the Latin inspiratio, which is a verb inspirar, breathe or blow into, in into, inspirar, to breathe. And so a person inspires, they're breathing, they're alive, and that's why we say when they die, they expired because they're no longer breathing. They've breathed out, never to breathe again. And so what this is saying is that God has spoken these words. When you talk to someone, you might not like people whispering in your ear because that warm breath is going into your ear canal. That's uncomfortable, but that's the concept. All Scripture is breathed out by God. God spoke it. It's His breath. But even furthermore than that, it speaks of its 
origin, God, but also of its power. Did you notice there in 2 Timothy chapter 3? He says all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. It is not profitable if it is not breathed out by God. That's his point. The reason that these words are profitable for your teaching and for your reproof and correction and instruction in righteousness, the reason that they're profitable to make you equipped to serve God acceptably is because God breathed them out. That's important. The power of God's word rests on the fact that he spoke it. In Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7, you'll remember that God breathed into the nostrils of man the breath of life and he became a living being. He's the one that gives life. I have life because God is the possessor of life. He is life himself. Acts 17 and verse 25 says this, He is not needing anything since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And it goes on in verse 28 to say that we are also his offspring and in him we live and move and have our being. He gives life and breath. We live and move and have our being from him. I want us to notice that in connection with what we read in John 5 about spiritual life. In verse 26 Jesus says this of himself, as the father has life in himself, he has granted the son to have life in himself and has given him authority to execute judgment also because he is the son of man. God has life. Jesus has life in himself and he has the say so the authority to tell people what they need to do to have life. He can impart that life. And so you'll remember in John, the sixth chapter, when Jesus fed those 5,000 with uh, five loaves of bread and two fish, and they came to him for more fish and bread. This is what he said in John chapter six and verse 26. Most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me because you saw the signs and not because you ate of the loaves and were filled. And he says this impressive thing. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the son of man will give you because God the Father has set his seal on him. He goes on to use that imagery and metaphor of the bread of life. Manna wasn't that bread. I'm that bread is what he says. You need to consume me because that's the food which endures to everlasting life. But I want us to notice what he goes on to say in John chapter 6 and in verse 63. He says, it is the Spirit who gives life. Wouldn't you know that? You know what Spirit means? It's from the Greek word pneumo, which is a breath, spirit, breath, like a current of air. Obviously, he's talking about the divine spirit, but it gives life. The flesh profits nothing. And then he says, the words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. Simon in verse 68 recognized it and says to Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And so they're breathed out by God. That's associated with the life that God gives. And that's why in Hebrews chapter 4 and in verse 12, it says the word of God is living and powerful because it is God breathed. I am living because God has given me breath. The word is living because it came from God. He gave it life. In Ezekiel 37, there is the prophecy Ultimately, not of the restoration of physical Israel, but of the restoration of Israel in the spiritual sense and the coming kingdom. And we remember the valley of dry bones and and what hope is there. And Ezekiel is having this vision and God tells him what to do. God said in Ezekiel 37 and verse 4, prophesy to these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Surely I will cause breath to enter into you, and you shall live. And I will put sinews on you, and bring flesh upon you, cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. And notice in verse 9 of Ezekiel chapter 37, he says, Prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slings that they may live. But remember, it was equated to the word of God, the prophecy of God. So notice in verse 14, the application of this vision. I will put my spirit in you and you shall live. And I will place you in your own land and you shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken it and performed it, says the Lord. God speaks his word revealed by the spirit. And that's what gives spiritual life and prophecy and to us. That's why God's word is powerful. It comes from him 
It originates from Him. It is of divine origin. It is breathed out by God. Our scripture reading was from 2 Timothy, or Peter rather, chapter 1 and verse 20. And you remember what is spoken there by the apostle, again by inspiration. He says, know this first. No prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation. Her prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. You see the connections we're making here? God breathes life into beings and His Word. His words are His wisdom communicated to us. God breathed. That's what imparts life. They're inspired by the Spirit. These are not the words of man. They're the words of God. That's why they're so powerful and they're so important. But what does that really kind of look like? What's the system? What's the mechanism, if you will? We see it there in 2 Peter chapter 1. In verse 20, he uses the word interpretation. No scripture or prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation. It's the Greek word epileusis, to loose, to solve, to explain. It denotes a solution, an explanation. And so we talk about an argument and, or, or a piece of, of, of literature, even scripture, and you, you call it naughty scripture, K-N-O-T-T-Y. And you've got to untie that knot to understand it. That's the idea. It's a solution, an explanation, literally a release to loose up. Vine says in 2 Peter 1 and verse 20, of private interpretation, that is, the writers of Scripture did not put their own construction upon the God-breathed words they wrote. They didn't formulate it. They didn't choose how to say what they said to explain the will of God is what he's saying. And then you might have that footnote that talks about divine origin. It's not from man. It's originated with God. But how did that happen? Verse 21, holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. The word is Pharaoh, moved. And it means to bear or to carry, and it's rendered being moved in 2 Peter 1.21. Vine says, signifying that they were born along or impelled by the Holy Spirit's power, not acting according to their own wills or simply expressing their own thoughts, but expressing the mind of God in words provided and ministered by Him. That's inspiration. God used a man in complete control of, of what words that would be chosen, of what thoughts it would convey to perfectly reveal His will. More on that in a moment. In Matthew chapter 10, you remember... Jesus' instruction to the apostles in the limited commission. And he said, when you're delivered up to councils, you're rested and stuff. Uh, don't worry about what you should speak. It'll be given to you in that hour what you should speak. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father who speaks in you. That's a concept of inspiration. In John 14, 15 and 16, Jesus promised the Holy Spirit to his apostles. In John 14 and verse 16, he says, I'll pray the Father, he'll send you another helper. Verse 17, that's the spirit of truth. What will he do? Verse 26, he will... Uh, guide you, teach you all things, bring into your remembrance all things that I said to you. There in John chapter 16 and verse 12, I have many things to say to you, but you can't bear them now. But when the spirit of truth has come, he'll guide you into all truth. He'll not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. He will tell you of things to come. He will glorify me for he'll take of what is mine and declare it to you. All things that the father has are mine. Therefore, I said, he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. That's the idea of inspiration. And that's what took place in Acts 2. When the men of God, the apostles, were filled with the Holy Spirit, the promise that he talked about in John 14, 15, and 16 is fulfilled. But what is inspiration? What's an what's a application of inspiration? And really, this is one of the proofs of it. You remember in verse 39 of Acts 2, Peter said this, the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord God will call. When he says to all who are afar off, that's scriptural language in reference to the Gentiles. In fact, in Ephesians 2 and verse 13, talking about the one new man created from the two in Christ, Jew and Gentile, he says, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. In Acts 2 and verse 39, God through Peter said that the gospel is for the Gentiles and you don't have to be a Jew. In Acts chapter 10, that's when he realized it. When Cornelius came to him and he went to preach the gospel to them, he said, in truth, because God has shown me, God shows no partiality. But in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. This is what Peter meant 
When he said in 1 Peter 1 and verse 10, Of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully. They prophesied of the grace of God that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us they were ministering the things which now have been reported, so on and so forth. He's saying when the prophets prophesied, when Isaiah wrote Isaiah 53, he didn't comprehend it like we do. He didn't know when it was going to happen. He didn't know all the ins and outs of it. Peter prophesied in Acts 2.39 that the Gentiles would be preached the gospel and the same promise to the Jews who obeyed the gospel is promised to the Gentiles and he didn't even know what he meant by it fully until Acts chapter 10. That's inspiration. God is speaking. There's other examples throughout the Bible. For example, in Exodus 4 and verses 13 through 17, remember when Moses is a little... uh, uh, hesitant about God's appointment for him. And he talks about, use your, use your uh, cousin Aaron, you, you use him, and I'll speak through you or, or your brother, rather. And in Exodus 4 and verse 13, you notice there, he said in verse uh, 14, is not your Aaron, the Levite, your brother. And he says, he can speak well. When he sees you, he'll be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth. I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and I will teach you what you shall do. In chapter 7 of Exodus in verse 1, The Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you as God to Pharaoh, and Aaron, your brother, shall be your prophet. You're putting the words in his mouth. He's conveying it. It's coming from God. In Jeremiah chapter 1, Jeremiah also is worried about being called to prophecy when he is appointed. And he talks about how he's too young. He can't speak. He's a youth. And then God says in verse 9, The Lord put forth his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. That's inspiration. God put the words in their mouth. But back to this idea of inspiration that some believe, illumination, just witty men wrote it down, and that's inspiration. Or inspiration in the dynamic view, that it was God's thoughts, but not His exact words. God God basically told the men His will and let them decide how to convey that. Some believe the Bible's inspired that way. Some believe it's just partially inspired. Well, Bible inspiration and the high bar it gives itself can be termed as plenary verbal inspiration. And that's just a technical way of saying full words God breathed. All of the words, not the thoughts, the very words, all of them, not some of them, all of the words that we have in the pages of our Bible, God chose them specifically. They are God breathed. They have the life of God within them. And that's what 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16 really is saying. Pos, all, graphe, writing, God breathed. All writing, God breathed. What about this word over here? Yes, all writing. Is that part of the writing? All the writing is God breathed. That's what he's saying there. In 1 Corinthians 2, in verses 12 through 13, this is what the Scripture reveals. It's plenary verbal inspiration. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 12, We have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. These things we also speak not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. The New American Standard Bible renders it this way, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. Why? Because he talked about how we've received the wisdom from God, and we speak in words... Which man's wisdom, not which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches. You combine the spiritual thoughts, wisdom of God, with the words that He chose. That's plenary verbal inspiration. Every single word is inspired by God. And there's examples of this throughout Scripture. In Galatians 3 and verse 16, the Apostle Paul, who is an inspired writer, argues on the plurality versus the singularity of a word to prove a very important doctrinal point. He said to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say to seeds as of many, but as of one and to your seed who is Christ. He couldn't do that if it wasn't that every word wasn't inspired. In Matthew 22, Jesus himself did the same thing. When the Sadducees refused to believe in the resurrection, he said concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what God was, what was spoken to you by God saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. That was from Exodus 3, long after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had died, but it was in the present tense. That's Jesus' argument. I am presently the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But if they're expired and don't exist anymore, 
then that is not true. He argued on the form of a word. I appreciate your kind attention. We're coming to an end. But because we believe the Bible and what it says, that it is completely inspired of God, every single word, someone will try to pick at that and say there's an inconsistency with that. And they'll make a false accusation. And what it's called is mechanical dictation. And this is essentially what they'll accuse us of believing if we believe that every single word is inspired of God. They'll say believers of plenary verbal inspiration believe that the Bible writers were only dictaphones or typewriters. Hence, their cultural and personality factors did not enter into their work. So they're just robots. And so they see, you see, you see a difference in the writing of Paul and Peter. You see a difference in the writing of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You see a difference in the writing of the prophet Isaiah versus the writing of the prophet Jeremiah versus the Psalms and versus the law. You see a difference in all the forms and styles and cultures and all that kind of stuff. And so it can't be that every word is written by one person, God, that every single word was chosen. That's a false accusation. It's a, it's a false premise that we even believe that because we understand uh, the, the, the variety in Scripture. In John chapter 15, remember, the Holy Spirit was promised to them. I want us to remember what he said there. Jesus did about that in their functioning as apostles. It says, when the Holy Spirit or the Helper comes, I shall send to you from the Father the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father. He will testify of me. I want us to notice verse 27 too. You also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. You ever wondered what he means by that? Is it the Spirit's testimony or is it the testimony of the apostles? When, when they also bear witness, their experience, I was an eyewitness, is that separate from the Spirit's testimony? That's not true. He's saying they are conveying their experience in witnessing the resurrected Christ. But the Spirit is guiding them to write down and speak their experience in their eyewitness testimony in an infallible way, a perfect way. You see that? And so that's why you have differences in, in, in how the gospel accounts are even rendered. But they're not contradictions. They're just different details that are added or that are left out that don't affect the greater picture. But when you lay them all on top of each other, you have the full picture. You see that? Not contradictions. They're different testimonies of the same exact thing. And that's what you see in the court of law. You have multiple eyewitnesses. Their stories don't have to be word for word the same in order to be straight. They can be harmonized or else they're not all true witnesses. Luke even, we won't read this, but in Luke chapter 1 and verses 1 through 4, he essentially says, listen, all these apostles, all these people who bore witness of the resurrected Lord and of his life, they've been telling you all about it. Some of them have even written it down. So I thought it necessary to go about, he's talking about doing research, gathering facts to give a well-ordered or chronological account of the life of Jesus including His resurrection from the dead and His ascension. And so He did His own research. Luke pulled things together, but God was guiding him. You remember in Colossians 4 and verse 14, the Apostle Paul talked about Luke and he referred to him as the physician. You might have heard it before, several words that are unique in Luke's gospel because it's doctor language. He was a physician. And God allowed him to say things in the way that he would say them with his experiences and with his knowledge. But he chose the words. He made sure the words were perfect to convey the thought. That's what inspiration looks like. In 2 Peter 3 in verse 16, again, Paul's writings are sometimes hard to understand. What do you mean? If I'm writing Scripture, it's God's words, and Paul's writing Scripture, it's God's words, then they should be equal in difficulty. But we know that's not true, don't we? We know Romans is pretty difficult at times. But they're God's words. Paul had a way of saying things. He had a way of writing. It's unique in and of itself. It's impressive in and of itself. But God guided him. His words were perfectly chosen. They stand the test of time. There is no contradiction to them. But you know, this is a false accusation. And what really happens is the understanding that there's this kind of variety in Scripture is one of the first proofs that it's inspired. Composed over 1,600 years, 40 different generations, 40 different authors, three different continents, 
three different languages, a host of walks of life, but uniformity. If we all decided to write about the same subject, we're going to be writing about it using different figures of speech, bringing in our own different experiences. It's not all going to sound the same, and there will probably be a ton of contradictions. These men were used by God. They still had their experiences. They still had their cultures, their family lives. They still had the language they spoke and the time that they were raised in and lived in. And God was able to use all of that infallibly to convey His total will. That's inspiration. No contradictions in this good book. And so you understand Paul's words in Romans 11, verse 33. Oh, the depth and the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and His ways past finding out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become His counselor? Who at first gives to Him and it shall be repaid to Him for of Him and through Him. And to Him are all things to whom be the glory forever. It's proof to me that it's inspired of God. So what is the conclusion if that claim is true. Well, Matthew 4 and verse 4, Jesus quoted Deuteronomy 8 and verse 3. He said, Man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Every word that is God-breathed. He's saying if you want life, if you want to be living, ultimately spiritually, what you must live by is God's words. It's because, as Jesus said in John 12, 48, the word that I have spoken will judge you in the last day. If I want to be living spiritually for eternity after judgment, I must live by every word in the Bible. Every word of the new covenant that we're under today. I must learn from the old covenant. I must go according to the law of Christ. Not one jot or tittle, as Jesus said Himself, should by any means pass away from my life. But I shall keep it all, because I will be judged by it all. Well, is that claim true? we got 45 more minutes, don't we? Next Sunday, I hope by God's will that we'll be able to look into some of the proof of this. But here's some proof. Hundreds of years before Jesus was born, there were prophecies about Him coming in the flesh, living a sinless life, and dying on a cross for the sins of the world. In John 3 and verse 16, Jesus said Himself, perhaps the comments of John the writer, God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Jesus said, as He gave the Great Commission, He who believes and is baptized will be saved. He who does not believe will be condemned. How could hundreds of hundreds of years ago there be a prophecy about the Messiah dying on the cross for the sins of the world? Even the people of God did not understand. And it happened to great detail, a fulfilled prophecy. Because God wrote it. And God said, if you believe and are baptized, you will be saved. That invitation stands for you this afternoon. Come forward while we stand and sing the song that was selected. <laughs>